the Ortho PAC hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Welcome back listeners. On today's podcast, I have Dr. Myers, who is a surgeon who practices sports medicine in Indianapolis, Indiana. Dr. Myers specializes in the arthroscopic treatment of hip and knee disorders, and he is the head team physician for the Indianapolis Colts. He's coming on today to discuss his recent presentation he gave at our annual meeting. The talk is called Hip Pain and Athletes, and it will be available soon for you to watch and earn CME. Dr. Myers, welcome to our podcast. Thank you guys for having me on. Part one, workup of the painful hip and athletes. Dr. Myers, you said that diagnosing the etiology of hip pain in the athlete can be difficult. What are some of the things you look for in taking a patient's history that might be more specific to an athlete? You talked about the age of the athlete and the sport that they play and similar types of histories. Can you elaborate on that for us? Just like when you take a history for any other injured joint, you want to find out the, you know, the location of their pain and the complaint of pain in their groin. Is it lateral hip pain? Is it buttock pain? Does the pain seem to stay in that area or does it radiate? How long has it been going on? Is this something that started acutely? you know, as an injury, or is this something that's more of an insidious onset? Uh, those are usually my the first questions that we'll ask. And then following up on that, we'll want to know, you know, what activities seem to exacerbate their symptoms? What, what, what activities help improve or relieve their symptoms? And then any treatment that they may have had prior to landing on our, our doorstep, whether that's been some type of over-the-counter medication or ice packs or Oftentimes, people will have Googled exercises to do that they may have tried on their own, or maybe they've had some formal treatment by a physical therapist or another another physician. So, those are kind of our our the basic history things that we ask. And then, if it's if it's an athlete, we want to know what sport do they play, and if you know if it's a sport that involves a dominant side. You know, for example, if they're a golfer, are they a right-handed golfer, a left-handed golfer? Uh, same with baseball and, and soccer. If they're a kicker, what leg do they kick with? So those are kind of our initial our initial sort of survey questions, I guess you you would say. What are some of the common physical complaints from athletes with hip pain, and what is a C sign? The C sign is when a, a patient will cup their hand and, and make a you know make a C with their with their forefinger and their thumb. And usually we'll kind of grab their hip with their, you know, their forefinger up in the front and their, their thumb coming around the back. And they just, they'll say that their hip kind of hurts deep, you know, kind of inside. And really they're, what they're trying to do is sort of pinpoint the, you know, an area between their forefinger and thumb, but it's deep inside of their hip where they can't quite get a, you know, put a finger on it, so to speak. Unlike if you're, you know, your wrist is painful, you can point and put one finger oftentimes on exactly where it hurts. Well, because the, the hip is so buried by all the soft tissue surrounding it, they have a hard time putting a finger on it. So the, the C sign was actually described by a nurse practitioner named Kay Jones, who was uh, Dr. Bird's nurse practitioner for a long period of time. And when he started seeing a lot of patients with hip problems, she noticed that they all made this sign with their hand and, and try to describe their pain as very deep in the hip. And uh, so even though it's 
known as the C sign to me, I will oftentimes think of it as the K sign because if we described it. In your presentation, you mentioned hip pain being generally classified as a problem either from an intraarticular or extraarticular source. You also mentioned that there are frequently multifactorial issues going on with a patient that presents to your clinic. Can you please share with our listeners an example of how there was more than one diagnosis in a patient you have treated? A lot of times people may have a, you know, an athlete's particular will have an intraarticular hip problem. So they may have hip impingement, which has led to a labral tear. But as a result of having a stiff hip, they may have also developed, uh, you know, athletic pubalgia or sports hernia in conjunction with that. And so if, if we can identify one of those things that seems to be the most predominant source of their symptoms, we'll go ahead and just treat that one. But oftentimes they'll, they'll feel like even though we manage their hip joint problem, they still feel this, this kind of core muscle injury. And so if that's the case, we often will try to manage those. Uh, if it comes to surgery, we'll try to manage them in the same rehab time frame. You know, the recovery from a arthroscopic hip surgery for most athletes is usually about four to six months, whereas a recovery from uh, a sports hernia or core muscle injury repair is often six to eight weeks. So you know, there's, there's been several athletes that we have, you know, taken care of their hip joint problem, repaired their labrum, managed their hip impingement, and then a month or so after surgery or a few weeks after, sur after their hip surgery, they go ahead and get their sports hernia fixed by, and that's usually performed by a general surgeon, so that's why it's not done at the same time. And that way they can, they can rehab from both surgeries in the same time frame and not have to, not have to miss prolonged any more time than is necessary. Dr. Myers, what is Hilton's law and what does that mean about hip pain? So Hilton's law basically says that the muscles that cross a given joint are also innervated by the same nerves that innervate that joint. And so for the hip joint, it's your, you know, your hip flexor muscles, your gluteal muscles, the hamstring muscles, you know, they, they cross over the hip joint. And so it's not uncommon for somebody who has an irritated hip joint to get some irritation in those muscles that cross over the joint and, and present almost with like a radicular type symptom. So with the hip, it's usually L2 and L3 dermatomes where people get some muscle irritation, some muscle spasm, fasciculation, that type of thing as a result of having a sore hip. Very similar to how we see it in the shoulder where people who have shoulder pathology will experience some muscle spasm within their trapezius, sometimes within their pec, just as those muscles are trying to protect and guard that joint. So it seems to be more common with ball and socket joints than it does with our hinge joints. Okay. If we're discussing the physical exam and we're looking beyond range of motion strength and neurovascular status, could you please let's discuss some special exams and what each one might indicate as far as the diagnosis? A log roll test, internal and external rotation, Fader, that's with double Ds, like double decker. Faber, with a B. So the log rolling test is if you have a patient lying supine on the exam table and you just log roll their test back and forth. And so you just log, you know, rolling them into internal rotation and rolling them into, you know, out of internal rotation and into external rotation. And if that reproduces their symptoms in their hip, usually that is pretty indicative of a hip joint problem. So it's a very 
very specific test for somebody with hip joint problems, although not very sensitive because only about 10 or 20% of people with hip joint pathology will actually have a positive log roll test. If that does reproduce your symptoms, there's not a whole lot of other things other than a hip joint problem that, that can cause or that that is stressing. So it's pretty, pretty specific for a hip joint. Fader is just a stands for flexion, adduction, and internal rotation. So it's with the patient, again, lying supine on the exam table. They're flexed up to 90 degrees. And then with adduction, so bringing their, their leg towards the midline and internal rotation, that's basically taking the anterior aspect of the femoral head and neck junction and jamming it up against the anterior labrum. And so if that causes pain, again, it's pretty indicative of somebody who has a hip joint problem. We always want to compare that to the contralateral side because if you take a, a healthy individual who has a normal hip and you are aggressive enough with that type of test, it will produce some discomfort. So we want to we want to compare it to the other side. And then Faber is flexion, abduction, and external rotation. And so again, flex the hip to roughly 90 degrees, abduct it as far as you can, and externally rotate. And that forces the hip uh, almost into a ap- position of some apprehension. And that if they get pain in their hip or groin area can be indicative of a hip problem. Classically, a favor test is thought of to be uh, a test for people with SI joint discomfort or SI joint dysfunction. And even though the, the maneuver is very similar, the location of the pain is different if you're assessing someone for a hip joint problem. If they experience pain posteriorly at their SI joint with the favor maneuver, that is more indicative of uh, sacroiliac dysfunction, whereas anterior pain is more indicative of, of hip joint pathology. Are there any others you frequently test? Depending on what we're suspicious of, we'll examine their abductor strength. So we'll, we'll check their sideline abduction strength and, and again, compared to the contralateral side. We'll have, him walk, we'll have patients walk. We'll test for a, a uh, Trendelenburg or look for a Trendelenburg sign. And we'll, we'll test their strength both with hip flexion and in a supine position and in a seated position. Okay, let's please talk about imaging studies. Do you get an x-ray on everyone? What kinds of things do you look for on an x-ray? Yeah, just about everybody is going to get an x-ray. And so interpreting hip joint x-rays, you know, first of all, the, the, the hardest thing for a, for a hip surgeon to do is you got to look at everything else. So you look at their lumbar spine, look at their... SI joint, look at, look at everything aside from the hip first to make sure you don't see any tumors or, or fracture or anything abnormal. But then when you start to hone in on the hip joint, we're going to we want to assess it for hip dysplasia. So make sure that the hip socket is deep enough. We'll want to look at, in, at the socket as well to see is there's some impingement. So there can be acetabular sided impingement where the socket overcovers the, the, the ball. And so we'll look, we'll look for that. Uh, and then we move on to the femoral side assessment. And we'll look for a you know appearance of sphericity of the femoral head. Does it look like the relationship between the femoral head and the femoral neck is is concave and not convex? And is there any obvious impingement? And to do that, we'll typically get a two or three lateral views of the affected hip just to assess the femoral head and neck junction at various angles. What about further imaging? MRI. Do you do your scans with or without contrast? And do you get an arthrogram if you're worried about some labral pathology? 
I do MRI scans without contrast, and, and I don't do MR arthrograms very often. Maybe once a year if we're if we're suspicious of of labral pathology, but we just don't see it in any other way. The reason, I mean, with contrast, if you're getting like a, an IV contrast MRI scan, that's usually looking for something like infection or a tumor. That's not typically what we're seeing. I mean, if we get a there's something that's suspicious on a plain MRI scan, the radiologist may call us and ask us to get contrast. But as a rule of thumb, we're not getting contrast. And then with with regards to an arthrogram, I feel like the arthrogram does a very good job of, of helping you determine whether there's a labral tear, but because you're putting so much dye in the hip, uh, it often will blunt the exposure of the other things that you may find, particularly with some synovitis or if there's if the patient already has a hip effusion. And I feel with the the good you know, the high quality scanners that are out there now, particularly if you can get somebody with a, a three Tesla magnet and, and they wear a, a surface coil, the resolution of the images is excellent. I've not found it necessary to get an MR arthrogram. On, on top of that, the patients don't really care much to have gadolinium inject, injected in their hip joint because it is quite uncomfortable for them. Listeners, please join us again next week with part two of an interview with Dr. Myers when he discusses some of his own clinical experience with different hip conditions and how they are managed. Thank you for joining the OrthoPAC podcast. We also welcome you to visit our website, paos.org, where members can download virtual conference content and get Category 1 CME. Also, if you're a non-member and you're interested in our CME content, please visit the aapa.org Learning Central for the PAOS virtual content.